Thank you, Rebecca and Dan and Ensemble for beautiful worship this morning. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 18, and as you turn to Psalm 18, I'll remind you that tonight at 6 o'clock, live on the radio, we'll be bringing our Acts study as we look at Acts chapter 20. Uh, tonight, 94.1, uh, 6 o'clock, we'll be coming from the Sanctuary First Baptist Church live on your radio. Who is God but the Lord? How big is the God you worship? Is he powerful enough to save? Is he swift enough to rescue? Can he overturn your enemies and their evil schemes? Can he cause the earth to shake? Can he make the mountains tremble? The smoke blow forth from his nostrils and fire leap from his lips when he speaks. Can he fly upon the, the wings of the wind? Quite candidly, if anything, I think we're guilty. We're guilty of being the people of a small God. We are afraid to let God be who God really is because then he might be too big for us to manage, for us to control, to manipulate, or to reshape into the own image that we want God to be. The reality is God is who God is regardless of how much of him we understand. God will not be formed, shaped, manipulated by your hands or by your head. The God of Psalm 18 is the God of David. And the God of David is a big God, a tremendous God, a fearsome God, a rescuing God, a saving God. Well, we're going to look at Psalm 18. In Psalm 18, David has both the presence and the protection of God. When we hear David cry out, yes, when we hear David sing out, as he takes comfort in the fact that God has not abandoned him to sorrow, God has not abandoned him to suffering, but God is present and God is real. God is both his rock and his shield in Psalm 18. Now, there is a companion psalm to this psalm is found in 2 Samuel 22. At the end of the story of David there in 2 Samuel 22, right before this same song, we read these words. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we have the setting there in 2 Samuel where we find the singing of this song. The Lord had delivered David, and specifically, he had delivered him from the hand of Saul, Israel's first king. But God had rejected Saul, the first king of Israel, and in his place, Samuel, Samuel the prophet, and Samuel the priest had anointed David the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, David, the musician, David, the slayer of the giant, 
And the logical line of succession, Saul's son Jonathan ought to be the heir to the throne. Jonathan should be the next king, but God had chosen David. David and Jonathan became the best of friends, having knit their hearts together in a covenant. And Jonathan became David's defender. He wasn't only willing to give David friendship, but he was willing to give David the throne of Israel as well. When you sit as king, you become very, very nervous. Saul was always looking over his shoulder to see who was trying to take the throne. But David never tried to usurp Saul's authority. He was letting God work it out in God's own way and in God's own time. Nonetheless, Saul was in that state of paranoia. He would even throw the javelin at David and try to pin him to the wall. He even threw the javelin at his own son, Jonathan, because he was angry and he was jealous about David. Besides, the women were won over by David and his bloody battle skills. They had a little song they liked to sing, and Saul didn't really appreciate it. Saul, meaning the king, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. The biblical writer tells us in 1 Samuel 18 that at that is a moment that Saul got green eyes. He heard, what are they singing? What are the ladies saying? I have slain my thousands, but David his ten thousands? How dare they attribute more victory to David than to me? So Saul began to hunt David down. Like someone hunting a partridge in the wilderness, the Bible tells us. In fact, the Bible says that he hunted David from here to there, meaning he was chasing David all over the place. On one occasion, David is hiding up in the Njeti, way up in the rocky hills where only the goats are willing to go. Saul took his men into the hills. He took them into a cave. David's men said, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now take revenge and kill him. David said no. But David gently cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and later he held it up to show Saul that I could have killed you. That there, when you were in the cave, I was in the deeper recesses of the cave. I came out and got so close as to cut your robe, but I spared you because my hands will never go against God's anointed. David would never hurt God's anointed. Upon escaping the death by Saul, on one of those occasions of deliverance by his God, one of those occasions when his ragtag band of men was looking at the polished armor of Saul's army. David sings Psalm 18. Well, the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3, God is worthy of our praise. Look at 1 through 3. God is worthy of our praise. I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, and he is worthy 
to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. I will call upon the Lord, and he is worthy to be praised. The first thing you, you see this morning in this song is God is worthy of praise. This magnificent hymn of praise begins that profound old statement, I love you, O Lord. The word here for love, the, the verb is intimate. It's an unusual word expressing his relationship to God. If you read this psalm, it becomes clear that there's an intimacy, awareness of God's constant companionship in a series of dangerous dangers and moral crises. God is the refuge, the rock for David. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I will take refuge. I will call upon the Lord and the Lord is worthy to be praised. More than once in this song, David is going to make it clear that God is worthy of our praise. I hope you're watching this morning by live stream or television because God is still worthy of your praise. I hope you have tuned in to worship him this morning this is the day, Sundays, when we commit ourselves to worship our God, to focus upon Him, to tell Him that He is wonderful and glorious and magnificent and unbelievable and powerful and loving and caring, that God indeed is worthy of our praise. There may be a myriad of different reasons that you're watching this morning but the best one I know is you are watching and singing and worshiping because God is worthy of your praise. God inhabits the praise of his people. And you feel this need in your heart to acknowledge God, to worship him. You want to stop your week and call time out and reset yourself around the power and the glory of both your creator and your sustainer. Maybe you woke up this morning and said, I'm going to schedule my day around worship of God. I'm going to join with God's people and I'm going to sing. He is worthy. He is wonderful. He is worthy of the offering of my praise. He's also worthy of the offering of our gifts. Our offering, our, our tithe is an act of obedience to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. It's an act of worship. We bring our tithe to God as part of our worship. And when we refuse our tithe, then we are likewise refusing to worship. To tithe is to worship. To withhold the tithe is to refuse to worship. God deserves our praise and our first fruits. But I don't want you to think for one moment that there is any way that you or I could diminish the power and the glory of God by withholding our praise. C.S. Lewis said, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. 
A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. God is wonderful, and God is worthy of our praise. There's a second thing we see in this song. God hears the prayers of his people. Look at verse 4, 4 through 6. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried out to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. God hears the prayers and the cries of his people. And the description here is if death, if somehow the underworld had already bound David and was drawing him down to a certain demise, the psalmist called upon God and God heard him from his temple. Not only did he cry out to God, God heard. Look at the emphasis. He heard my voice. My cry came into his ears. Our God is not a deaf God, like an idol of stone or a God carved out of wood. Rather, he hears and responds. Psalm 10, 17 says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble and you will cause your ear to hear. God hears you. Of all the comforts that you and I have in our Christian life, there is no greater comfort than to know that God hears the cries of his people. God listens to us wherever we are this morning. God knows our hearts. And God is a God from ancient Israel to the church today. God has always heard the cries of his people. Do you remember when Moses is called at the burning bush? He had to take off his shoes because he's on holy ground. And the message of Yahweh, the God of I am to Moses is, Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. God hears the cries of his people. God is a God with ears. God hears you. Now, the older I get, the more I appreciate silence. I don't know if that's normal in the aging span, but when I was a child, I was an incessant talker, and now I talk a little bit less. I appreciate a little silence every now and then. It, it was a few months ago. I was seated on the back of an airplane, and there was a very, very talkative man on the back of the airplane. At the top of his lungs, he told his whole life story. The good, the bad, the ugly, the interesting, the boring. He told his whole story for all of us to hear. I noticed, interestingly, people started getting out their earphones and sticking them in their ear and looking the other way. And, well, the plane finally landed, and those of us who didn't have ear 
phones were delivered from being this captive audience to this very talkative man. And as the plane landed, he looked to the poor soul who happened to be seated right beside him and said, I sure hope I haven't talked too much. Oh, my goodness. He had talked way too much. It was like being in a live scene of the airplane movie. He would not be quiet. That's a nice way to say it. The kids are tuned in. He would not be quiet. I was tired of hearing him. But God never grows tired of hearing us. God has ears. And God hears the cries of his people. My ears can only last so long and then I begin to tune out. But God's ears are attentive to every utterance of his people. God, as my father, listens every time I speak to him. He's attentive. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's always there, always listening, always caring about what's going on in your life and my life. I don't know what you're suffering through today. I don't know if it's a hardship at work. I know some folks who heard even this week the word furlough. That's a hard word to hear. Maybe employment is your difficulty today. Maybe being in lockdown has intensified the anger that's in your home, and maybe divorce is lurking at your door. And certainly we have learned in these days that death does not stop. It is Sunday. I am already scheduled to officiated three funerals this week, and it's just Sunday. The week has just begun. It's Sunday morning, and three funerals already. Maybe death causes you to cry out to God. I don't know, perhaps the virus has caused your faith to vanish, and you cry out to God in frustration and bewilderment. I don't know what makes you cry out to God today, but I do know that God hears and cares about the cries of his people. Not only is God worthy of praise, we have a God who hears. Of all the people who are worshiping today, we are the only people who have a God who's living and active and hears the cries of his people. There's a third thing we need to see. Verses 7 through 15, God is powerful in his response. Not only does God hear the cries of his people, God is powerful in response. David is surrounded by the cords of death, by the powers of the netherworld. He calls upon God. And God hears, but even more, God who is so powerful, God responds in a big way. The help of God for each of our individual needs is like the redirecting of the Amazon River to flow down to water a single daisy. God cares 
And God generously responds. Look at verse 7. Look at the response of God, how powerful it is. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the, fountains, the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them and lightning flashes in abundance and he routed them. Then the channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. What a powerful response. Here we have a description of God and all of his grandeur and all of his glory and all of his splendor. It's a picture of God. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of a judge who makes right the wrong. It's so hard to capture the essence of God. On the Art Linkletter show, there was a little boy who was drawing a picture, and Linkletter inquired, what are you drawing there, son? And the boy replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. Linkletter told the little boy, well, no one really knows exactly what God looks like. And the boy said, well, when I get through with my picture, they will. He was confident he had captured the image of the Almighty. I don't know if the little boy captured the image of God, but I know David did right here. This is a titanic scale. God stands in contrast to the small human figure of David. It's a theophany. It's an encounter with the holy and the righteous God. It's the appearance of God. It's a telling of the story of the Red Sea, the deliverance. It's a telling of the story of the presence of God and all the power at Mount Sinai. You see, the earth is quaking. The waters are divided. The mountain is wrapped in smoke. God descends upon it, and there is fire. It is a judgment of God. The evil of men is destroyed. Smoke, like Isaiah 6, dramatizes the anger of holiness to sin. The nostrils in Hebrew are the organ of anger, and God's blasting, flaring his nostrils. This devouring fire is synonymous with Deuteronomy 4, the divine jealousy of intolerance. The coals are round, rained down from God's chariot throne like the doomed city in Ezekiel. There's darkness in this storm. Lightning unleashes itself, and finally, the heavens themselves bow to God. A cherub is in attendance with God. It represents God's holiness like there on the holy of holies at the mercy seat. In the midst of all this thundering, earth-shaking God, we're struck by the fact that God is personal and God cares for us. He sends the lightning, the thunder, the smoke, and the fire to respond to the cry of David. Here's a third thing I want you to see. A fourth thing I want you to see. God delivers, verse 16 through 19. 
Number four, God delivers. Look at verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Given the enormity of this God of David, it's surprising to find a God with that much power responding to David's individual need as he will for you too. We have sickness and financial stress and hardship, hardship in every form and shape. We have a God who hears the cries of his people and a God who delivers. Look at verse 36. You enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. And look at verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? Who else is there that can be God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Indeed, who is God but Yahweh? For those of you this morning who are down and depressed, I ask you the question, who is God but the Lord alone? The blazing God of the Psalter is the only God we can worship. Miroslav Volf of Yale University says there can only be one God. He's playing off the idea from Pope Nicholas V of the 15th century. When you say there are several gods, that's implying that no one God has power enough or the attributes to be the only God. There can only be one God. Who is God but Yahweh, but the Lord? There can't be multiple gods. There can't even be two gods. There can only be one God, or each of the gods lacks a supremacy to be the glory, the glorious one that befits only God alone. Who is God but the Lord? I get amused when someone tells me that he is an atheist. For the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What the atheist is telling you is he wants to worship himself. You're going to worship something. And only Yahweh is worthy of your worship. I myself, are, I'm, way too infallible, I'm way too fallible and weak to be worshipped. We are faulty. We need a God. Or when somebody tells me they don't believe in the God of Scripture, let me tell you about the God I believe in, she might say. What she has done like the carver of the idol, she has created a God with the attributes she desires. She has made and formed a God with her own hands. I don't get to choose what God is like. You don't get to choose what God is like. Scripture reveals to us what God is like, and God is loving, and God is righteous, and God is holy, and God is forgiving, and God is merciful. I can't recreate God 
in the image I desire. I can only worship the God that is in Scripture. God is God. Who is God but the Lord? God is worthy of our praise. God deserves all of our worship. The psalmist says, I will call upon the Lord, for the Lord is the one who is worthy to be praised. Verse 49, he says again, I will sing praises to your name. We need a big God during these trying days, don't we? There is but one, the God who was, the God who is, and the God who will always be. The God who was, and the God who is, and the God who will always be. A God who loves us enough to send his son Jesus down on the cross in our place, and as we confess our sins to him, that we are forgiven, and in purity and in holiness, not our own purity, but the purity of the crucified Son, the Christ. We can sing praises to God, and we can worship Him. Who? Do you have another one? Who is God but the Lord? And He hears wherever you are, whatever your cry, he hears the cries of his people. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us when we make you small. We try to form you with our own hands. We try to manipulate you and pick and choose what we can believe about you, to control you, to transform you into God that we like. But instead, oh God, like David, we must allow your blazing power from heaven to transform us as we fall to our knees and we shout for the divine beings, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts in all of his glory. Amen.